You're not justified by your works, but by Christ's finished work. You are not sanctified by doing more. You're sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit who works within you. You're listening to Galatians, a sermon series preached in the fall of 2019 at Shoreline Church. For more audio and theological content, visit thisisshoreline.com. Today I'm using paper notes, so this is going to be really, really exciting. We're going to go old school today. Well, have you ever followed a GPS and suddenly realized that it was taking you in a direction you weren't expecting? Yeah, it's happened this morning. Uh, It's happened to all of us, but has it ever brought you into a body of water? I'm serious about this. A few years ago, that's exactly what happened to some ladies in Bellevue, Washington. Uh, The news line, um, the headline doesn't read this, but the first line of the story actually says this. Three young women escaped a sinking car after a direction from a rental car GPS unit sent them down a boat launch and into the Mercer Slough early Wednesday. Okay, Uh, the driver apparently thought she was on a road following the GPS and she looked away from the road for a minute and uh, it was after midnight, it was dark, so there's that, but she actually went down the boat launch and into the water. Um, uh, All three women made it out safely, so there was no tragedy, but the car was not salvageable and ended up being totaled. That was quite a Michael Scott thing to do. Now, what was the ultimate problem there? Other than the obvious, The problem was that the destination was incorrect, and thus the directions that took these ladies into the water, uh, into the lake, uh, had veered them off course. And I would argue this morning that if we don't have the destination right, then the methods that we follow will ultimately take us in in a direction that could lead to our own destruction. May I suggest to you this morning that as we open up this New Testament letter that we call Galatians, that this is exactly what happens when someone becomes a legalist. In other words, they have the wrong destination in mind. Legalism. I call legalism the Waffle House of Christianity. You never really want to eat there, but all of us end up there at some point in our life, (laughs) scattered and smothered. The legalist is the person who honestly thinks that God is more pleased with them uh, because they keep the law in a certain way. And the path that leads us there ends up sinking us into despondency and discouragement and emptiness. Let me say it this way. Legalism will either build up your pride or leave you hopelessly in despair. But either way, church, it's a dead end. We need the right destination, and that's not legalism. That's not impressing God with our good works. The right destination is the gospel of grace. The declaration uh, made by Cambridge, the Cambridge Declaration says this. We reaffirm, because it's already been affirmed, but we reaffirm that in salvation we are rescued from God's wrath by his grace alone. It is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to Christ by releasing us from our bondage to sin and raising us from spiritual death to spiritual life. We deny that salvation is in any sense a human work. Human methods, techniques, or strategies by themselves cannot accomplish this transformation. You see, church, the destination is the true gospel of grace and a right understanding of when we say grace. What does that mean? So 
where and when and how did the church in the region of Galatia go wrong in this first century? How did they depart from these truths? Uh, The Apostle Paul had gone on a church planting mission through modern-day Turkey with an apostolic band of men to establish elders and leaders within uh, various regions and cities and towns. And Pastor Micah taught us last week on what that actually looked like, that initial commissioning, uh, that sending off from the church in Antioch in Acts 13. But one of the regions that they eventually arrived at, either their first or second missionary journey, was an area called Galatia. Now, if we had a map, and thankfully we do, uh, it would be between Israel and Greece. I think uh, we can flash it up there. So that red area is kind of the region, if you would, of Galatia. Uh, It's north of the Mediterranean Sea in that region. In fact, if we zoomed in a little bit, let's go to the next map. If we zoomed in, there's a, a little bit more of an accurate picture. And then if we were to zoom in even closer, uh, we would see those cities, Antioch, Lystra, Iconium, and Derby. And so um, Galatia, wasn't, Galatia wasn't a city, it was a region. Just think when someone says southwest Florida, which is actually, Florida is about the size of Galatia. Uh, we're not talking about a city, but a region, an area, a section of the world. And the churches in that area seem to be healthy. They seem to be starting off well. But a few years later, Paul gets word that some people had come in and had led some of their core doctrinal beliefs astray. Like the the root of the gospel, the actual centerpiece of the faith had been moved off by a degree. And these people had come in and said, you know what, yeah, you're saved by grace through faith, and it's in Jesus, but... But you still have to obey the Old Testament law, including circumcision, in order for God to give you his grace and for you to be saved. And so Paul, feeling like his kids had let a stranger come into their home, uh, gets up in arms and was shocked that these people were given a voice, let alone a microphone. And so Paul writes one of the first letters we have to the early church, what we call Galatians, to correct this false teaching. By the way, we have false teaching today in the United States and in Western culture and around the world. False teaching is an issue that needs to be denounced. It needs to be called out. And Paul gives us an example of this that we'll look at today. And many untaught or unassuming Christians will just fall into deception uh, that are taught by false teachers or cults. And people will come along and say, oh, you know, Jesus um, that you worship isn't really the Jesus uh, of the Bible, or the Bible isn't accurate, so here's a different account, a different revelation, and here's why I believe this. And they put people into bondage. Uh, And when we begin to listen to these men, we become brainwashed. So as we study Galatians, from the very beginning, I want us to understand the main point of it all. If you're taking notes, um, if you haven't gotten one of these, these are awesome. These are our Galatians scripture journal. So you can pick one up today after service and resource for $2. I think that's cost. But in here you can take notes. And if you're taking notes today, here is on the screen the main point, the thrust of the entire letter. It's this. Salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ plus nothing. Plus nothing. You could say it this way as many succinctly have. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. One person said it this way. We don't have the quote on the screen, but they said the gospel is not simply, as we've learned recently, it's not simply the ABCs of Christianity, but it's the A to Z of Christianity. Once God saves us, he doesn't then move us beyond the gospel into something different. He moves us more deeply into the gospel. The gospel doesn't simply ignite the Christian life. 
It's the fuel that keeps Christian people going and growing every day and in every way. In other words, the gospel isn't simply the power to save us. It's also the power of God to change us once we're saved. This little epistle shows us that we can come to God and we can do so freely on the basis of the grace of God, not on the basis of my works and my good ethics. So, are we saved by faith plus anything? That's a question that we'll be asking and answering almost every week. Are you and I saved by repentance and faith in Christ alone? Or is there something else we need to do to impress God uh, to be saved? So today we're going to begin in chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to cover these first nine verses. And here's the outline on the screen. If you're taking note, we're going to follow this outline today. First, we're going to look at the gospel del- or the greeting delivered, verses 1 and 2. And how it's kind of nice to greet someone when you are writing them a letter. We'll see his greeting. We'll see then the gospel in three different ways. The gospel described in verses 3 through 5. Then the gospel distorted in verses 6 and 7. And then Paul will defend the gospel in verses 8 and 9. So with that in mind, that's where we're going today. Uh, And let's begin in verse 1 with the greeting delivered. Verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. If you would, circle the word apostle, highlight that word apostle. Uh, This comes from one of the Greek words to send, apostolo. Uh, We learned last week uh, that uh, Jesus chose 12 of his disciples to be with them, and he called them apostles, but he's also sent others. And so this term, sent one, is often used of Jesus being sent from the Father. In Jewish sources, the term was used of someone who was sent as an official representative of another, uh, similar to our word ambassador. And so Paul says, that's me. I'm, I'm an ambassador. I'm an apostle. I've been sent. It's more of an official title, however, like the 12. I'm, I'm an official apostle. And then he says, I'm not from men. Verse 1 is one of the strongest affirmations Paul makes in his epistles, speaking of his apostolic authority. And his qualifications. But you might ask, why would Paul have to, right out of the gate, make such a case for his qualifications? Why does he have to prove that he's not sent from men, that he's legit? Why? Well, mainly because the false teachers that crept into these churches began to discredit Paul. How do you discredit someone uh, unless you begin with their credentials and qualifications? In other words, if you were researching a doctor and you're like, I really feel like that was malpractice. That was bad service. That was just a bad doctor. You would maybe research their, where did he go to school? Where did she begin practicing? I want to know what their credentials are. Anytime someone sends me a podcast and they're like, hey, pastor, listen to this teaching. If I listen to it and I begin to start questioning something that was said, like that doesn't sound right. I'm immediately going to Google the pastor's name and find out where did he go to school. I want to know his credentials. I want to know his qualifications. And so in a sense, the false teachers are attacking Paul's credentials, his calling. They're saying, in effect, well, who does this guy Paul think he is? Where does his authority come from to teach that salvation comes by grace alone? And so he begins by saying literally in the Greek, Paul, an apostle, not. Immediately out of the gate, Paul wants to establish that I am not sent by man. This is not some guy's authority laid on me. I I am not an apostle commissioned by men or originated from the will of any man. This wasn't like a group of men had popular vote and I won the popular vote. 
This wasn't nepotism where my dad was, was kind of there and so he raised me up and that's just how, it roll, how you roll. Uh, this wasn't Paul being hired because he filled out an application on churchstaffing.com. Uh, oh, they're looking for an apostle. I'm going to apply for that and see if I, I make it. No, Paul was sent by God himself, by Christ himself on mission. And can you utter with such confidence? I'm definitely not fill in the blank. I know it's not good to define ourselves by what we're not. I know that's important. We define ourselves by what we are. But it can help a little to know what we're not. This is something I'm not. Like just for an example, me, uh, I can tell you clearly I am not a vegan. Uh, And when we go to Fellowship Sunday after service, I'm looking for the meat. I'm just telling you, I'm going, and donuts as well, but I'm not vegan. I'm not a soccer fan. I'll pretend to be and I'll cheer And then I'll go, oh, whoops, I'm cheering for a penalty. I didn't realize that was what was going on. I'm not a soccer fan. I am not into pedicures. I know some guys are. Not me, okay? I'm not a night owl. Uh, So if you call me after 930, I'm probably asleep, okay? I'm not a night owl. I'm not generally a fan of ties. Those sweaters aren't bad. Uh, I'm not a racist. I'm not into people who talk loudly or chew their food loudly, okay? I'm not a fan of country music or drugs or drinking or laziness. So uh, that's me. I'm kind of defined by what I am not. And that doesn't give you perfect clarity into who I am, but it certainly tells you what I'm not. So Paul could say, listen, I'm not an apostle who is sent by men. Maybe he's given a dig. You know, some people are sent by men, and that's not me. I've been commissioned by Jesus. So Paul says, listen, I don't know where your credentials come from. Mine come from the resurrected Christ. (laughs) Look at verse 2. He says, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. In other words, Paul's saying, listen, I'm not alone in my doctrine. All my colleagues in the gospel work are traveling with me. Now, this could have been a reference to the variety of men that had been with Paul. uh, Not necessarily joint authors with Paul, but they were joining him in his sentiment and in his salutation. Paul says, I'm not alone. I've got men around me that corroborate this calling upon my life. So unlike our letters and our emails today where we address the person to whom we're writing at the beginning, we say to whom it may concern or we list the person's name at the beginning, then we put our little uh, greeting at the end. It was in the first century opposite. So you began by stating your name and your credentials, and then at the end you would um, ultimately end it with a closing greeting. And so this... Uh, was an open letter, he says, to the brothers, or sorry, to the churches of Galatia. This is an open letter to all the churches in that region. And there would have been clusters of house churches with a plurality of elders within each congregation. And so that brings us, there's the greeting, that brings us to our second idea here, the gospel described. Look at verse 3, 4, and 5 with me. Here's Paul's greeting to them. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Standard greeting, grace to you and peace. And theologically, it's in that order. In other words, you can't experience the peace of God until you first experienced the grace of God. Uh, And we receive the grace of God through faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 explain to us. So this is Paul's standard greeting, grace to you and peace. Uh, Almost all of his epistles, he starts grace to you and peace. But in Galatians, he actually goes on to kind of present the gospel, that God in Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us for his glory. Uh, this is the good news. Maybe you missed it, but look, look at the rest of these verses. He says, 
from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, back a few weeks ago when we kicked off our mission series, When Disciples Send, uh, we did a, a sermon called When, and we talked about from 1 Corinthians 15, what is the gospel? And so, actually, the gospel is kind of listed here, not in its totality, but in a portion of it in these verses. And I want to show you on the screen in case you missed it. So let's just walk through each one of these. First, he says, grace to you and peace. In other words, salvation is initiated by God. And it's unmerited favor brought to those who had enmity with God in their natural fallen state. Now, where does that grace and peace come from? Well, the next line says, from God our Father. So we who've received his grace and mercy are born again spiritually into a community, into a family of faith. And this isn't just some conceptual reality about God, like this God idea. No, it's a real knowable God who desires to be in a relationship with us. He's Father. Well, look at what happens next. He says, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what he's saying here is that Jesus is Lord. He's Messiah over all. The supremacy of Christ over all creation demands our submission. We say Jesus is Lord. That is the, the gospel in its shortest form. Jesus is Lord. Well, then he says, here's what Jesus did. He gave himself for our sins. So Jesus voluntarily offered himself to us as the blood sacrifice, or more, more accurately, to the Father. And so we call this a variety of things, substitutionary atonement. We can call it propitiation or expiation to take our sins away from us. But essentially, the blood of Jesus covers our sin and covers and pays for our rebellious treason against the just law and the wrath of God. And then not only that, but he says to deliver us from the present evil age. So we have received freedom, which we'll see more in the book of Galatians, We've received freedom from bondage, corruption, and the philosophies of this world. So we're, we're delivered from this world, which now means we're distinct and different from the world. He says all of this is according to the will of our God and Father. So all of creation exists for the praise of his glorious grace. And so the ultimate purpose in life is not to make money. It's not emptiness. It's not meaninglessness. No, it's to bring worth and weight to a good God who is of supremely more value and worth than any created thing. To him be the glory forever and ever. And then the last word is amen. In other words, that's not just what you say at the end of a prayer. It's agreeing with everything that was prayed. It's I agree with all this, so this message must be agreed to and received by the hearer. To say amen or to not say amen implies you reject some aspect of this message. And some will. Some do reject the gospel. They don't believe they need the good news. The good news, by the way, is not that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The good news is not that Jesus loves you and wants you to go to heaven. Okay? Before we can understand why the good news is so good, we have to realize that there is really, really bad news. There is tragically terrible news. Today you need to know the awful news that you violated the commands of a holy lawgiver. And you're already pronounced guilty. You stand condemned. Everyone knows John 3.16, but John 3.17, kind of an orphan verse, says that we stand condemned already. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world because it's already condemned. You're condemned today. Apart from Christ, you stand condemned. 
There's no appeal system. You can't say it's not fair. There's no way of escape. There's no way around it. There's not a second chance, a second out. There must be full payment of blood resulting in your death, your eternal death. And the Bible explains that the wages of sin is death. And it is a cruel payday indeed. You see, before we understand the good news, we have to acknowledge the bad news. And listen, church, even though it's being said around Western culture, the bad news is not just that you're broken. The bad news is that you are utterly sinful. Randy Newman says this, God describes our sin many ways, almost all of which are far worse than broken. We're rebellious, idolatrous, lost, enslaved, disobedient, adulterous, and in case the point wasn't pressed far enough, dead. If we see our sin as mere brokenness, our repentance and abhorrence at sin won't push us in the opposite direction hard enough. And our appreciation of the cross as the only cure will be replaced with self-effort and legalism. Listen, hopefully that discourages you a little bit today. And your current state apart from Christ, we are absolutely, utterly condemned. This is terrible news. And yet, in the midst of this, let me smile and tell you there's beautifully glorious good news. And that is that God has both required and provided blood. He sent his son Jesus who bore our guilt and our shame and our death sentence. And Jesus stood in our place and took our punishment and died and yet was without sin. But we know Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again triumphantly conquering the grave and he stands to pour out and forgive us by giving us grace and mercy and peace. But I believe there's another reason Paul adds the gospel here at the beginning. I think he's trying to point out that the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ is the foundational truth upon which we build our faith. Once we depart from the cross, we can fall into one of two ditches, okay? Follow this with me for a minute. Paul's setting this up. This is the centerpiece, the bedrock foundation of our faith. And if we depart from that, then we're going to fall in one of two sides of the ditch, We either are going to fall over here. If the cross escapes our mind, then we fall on this side where we forget the love and kindness and forgiveness that God has for us. And we begin to fall into sin and selfishness and emptiness. And you could call this the immoral atmosphere. We begin to forget that. We don't understand that. And so we begin to fall into depravity. Or on this side, if we forget the cross, we begin to think, you know what? This is about me. And so we become basically pious and we think that we're holy. And, you know, I do have straight white teeth after all. And I don't really need God. I don't need God on the religious atmosphere, the moral atmosphere. I just need a mirror so I can look at myself and be impressed. This is the moral atmosphere. So whether we fall into immorality or morality, both, listen, are an offense to the cross. B.B. Warfield says this, there is nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly development because of which we are acceptable to God. Nothing that we've done. We must always be accepted for Christ's sake or we cannot ever be accepted at all. This is not true of us only when we believe. It is just as true after we believe. It will continue to be true as long as we live. Our need of Christ does not cease with our believing, nor does the nature of our relation to him or to God through him ever alter, no matter what our attainments in Christian graces or our achievements in behavior may be. It is always on his blood and righteousness alone that we can rest. Now, I'd love to stop there. Wouldn't it be great if Paul just stopped there? Like, here's the gospel, guys. 
thanks for continuing in it. That's not where he stops. The Galatians had thought there was something kind of freshman about that. And we've moved on to the next level. And they wanted to move to something deeper. And so they departed from the gospel and deserted God in preference uh, for something more attractive. But Paul has to intervene and get even soberingly strong with them. So he begins in verse 6 to talk about the gospel distorted. This is our third idea. The gospel distorted. Look at verse 6. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, the word for astonished here, uh, you might want to circle that. It is the word often used when Jesus would do a miracle and the crowds were amazed or they marveled at something that he did. It has with it the idea of just sheer surprise or wonder. That's the word that Paul uses here. And notice that he says you're turning to a different gospel. You guys see that word turning? Circle that word. That's a military term that's used for revolt. In other words, they were revolting against the gospel. They were staging a coup against the grace of God. And that astonished Paul. I wonder what Paul would be astonished at if he looked at the church today. What would he be astonished by? Well, it seems that the church in this region was quickly deserting God in favor of something else, something more attractive. Why? Why would they turn to another gospel? Well, some people today turn to another gospel because the true gospel is foolishness to them. And they want something maybe elegant or complex. It's just foolishness. Uh, Some people turn to other gospels because the cross is offensive and they want something attractive. But I believe people turn to other gospels because in our flesh, listen, that's our default mode. It's our default mode in our flesh to turn from the gospel. Walter Marshall explains this default mode when he says this. He says, by nature, I like this, you are completely addicted to a legal method of salvation. Even after you become a Christian, by believing the gospel, and you're here today, maybe a maturing Christian, a a, Christian, a deeper believer. He says, your heart is still addicted to salvation by works. In your heart, you still want to make the duties of the law come before the comforts of, comforts of the gospel. You find it hard to believe that you should get any blessing before you work for it. This is the mindset you tend to fall into. You sincerely do want to obey the laws of God. Therefore, to make sure you obey the law of God, you make all of God's blessings depend upon how well you keep his law. Anybody guilty? He says, just keep in mind, however, that if you go this route, you will never enjoy your salvation for as long as you live in this world. Wow. Paul says, I'm astonished that you would start a revolution and move into another gospel. But notice verse 7. He says, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Listen, there isn't any other good news. Paul says, someone came and they preached this different good news. But he says there's not actually another one. It's just a distortion. So, you know, I could say it this way. If you brought a $100 bill to me and said, hey, so this is a different Benjamin. This is a different Benjamin. I'd say, no, there's no other Benjamins. There's only one type of $100 bill. And any other type like it, a different type, is a distorted type. And thus, it's not the true thing. It's a counterfeit. And that's what Paul's saying here. He says these people are trouble. And they're distorting the true gospel. Circle that word distort. Did you know the word distort here can also be translated pervert? And it means to change something, to turn something, to transform it from one thing to another. Very specific usage of the Greek. 
Uh, the only other place in the New Testament this particular word is used is in Acts chapter 2, when Peter says that the sun will be turned into darkness before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And that word turned into is this word. So Peter says the light of the sun is going to turn into darkness, change from one form into a totally different form, transform. Now what happens when you do that with the gospel? When you take good news and you change it, you know what you do, church? You make good news bad news. You take the good news and you pervert it and make it bad news. Now, I think it's interesting here that Paul has no word of gratitude for the church in Galatia. To every other church that Paul greets, he greets with thanksgiving except for them. In every epistle that he writes to a church, what's normative for Paul is to begin his letters addressing his audience, grace to you and peace, and then explain, here's why I'm thankful for you. He thanked God that the Romans' faith was being proclaimed in all the world. I just thank my God that your faith is proclaimed in all the world out of Rome. He thanked God for the grace that had been given to the Corinthians. And man, they needed grace. <laughs> they were a crazy church. They needed God's grace. Paul heard of the faith and love for all the saints that came out of Ephesus. And he said, man, I can thank God for that. He said to the church in Philippi, Man, your partnership in the gospel is something I can thank God for. To the Thessalonians, Paul was grateful for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope in Jesus. But here, to the church in Galatia, Paul has no commendation. He only has concern. Why? Because they had so easily departed from Christ. Now, in verse 8, we have some of the strongest language in all the New Testament. Look at our fourth point, the gospel defended. Verse 8, Paul says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so now I say to you again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. I'm having you highlight or underline, circle a lot of words today, but would you circle that word accursed? The word accursed here is the word anathema. And anathema means more than just judgment. It actually would be something like, man, that guy should go to hell. Whoa, this is heavy language. Verse 9 is definitely not a verse that you would see in the morning on your Bible app verse of the day. Right? See, verse of the day, if anyone preaches another gospel, let him be uh, condemned. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to post a picture of that with a latte or a bird or a mountain in the background. It's not the Thomas Kincaid photo with the waterfall. Let him be anathema. That's not, that's not going to be there. But an important verse. Notice who it is that Paul condemns. He says it's the messenger, the messenger of the false gospel. You could say it this way, damn the damners. That would be an accurate translation. I am praying a curse, a damnation upon those who are damning God's people. Now let me read this verse to you again. Look at it again, verse 9. As I, we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. In verse 8, even if we are an angel from heaven, even an angel from heaven, the angel Moroni was purported to come to Joseph Smith to speak to him what we call Mormonism, which is not the gospel. Did you know the angel Jabril, whom we call Gabriel, was reported to have commanded Muhammad, even against his will, to receive the revelations of the Quran, which is not the gospel. 
Listen, church, any means of creation, any mouth that's been formed by the hand of God that utters a contrary gospel is to be anathema. This is more than just like put out of the congregation or just kind of excommunicated. This has to do with it. Damnation. This is the strongest language Paul uses in any of his writings. He says, may they be separated from Christ. May they be accursed. Now, someone might be here this morning, and maybe this is your first Sunday, uh, to a church. And you might say, whoa, I mean, this guy Paul is a little heavy. I mean, he needs to just have decaf. Like, he just needs to settle down. Is this a big deal? And I would say, yes, this is a huge deal. Listen, church, when lives are at stake because truth is misunderstood, there has to be intervention. I don't know why the church is so soft today and we're afraid to deal with false teaching. We're afraid to speak against it. We're afraid to stand up and say, that's wrong. That's false and that's not true. Why are we afraid of that? Why are we so soft? Uh, C.T. Studd said something that I love, and this isn't exactly uh, applicable to what we're talking about, but it inspires me. Here's what he said. He says, before the world, I... Before the sleepy, lukewarm, faithless, namby-pamby Christian world, we will dare to trust our God. We will venture our all for him. We will live and we will die for him. And we will do it with his joy unspeakable, singing aloud in our hearts. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting only our God than live trusting in man. And when we come to this position, the battle is already won. And the end of the glorious campaign in sight. We will have the real holiness of God. Not the sickly stuff of talk and dainty words and pretty thoughts. We will have a masculine holiness, one of daring faith and works for Jesus Christ. I love that. And I believe that also includes standing up and speaking out when there's distorted gospels being preached. Listen, that's not divisive or unloving. On the contrary, that's perhaps the most loving and unifying thing that we can do. Let me illustrate it to you this way. Last year, a man was flying on an airplane for the first time. First time on a flight, and uh, he was on the flight. He unbuckles in the middle of the flight and uh, had to use the lavatory. And so he began uh, walking down the center aisle, and he got to the lavatory, and he began turning the handle and trying to pull the door and began forcing it open. Well, at the, at the same time, the passengers on the plane begin to lose their heads. People start screaming at him. Uh, a group gets up, and they tackle him to the ground. What's the problem? He has to use the bathroom. What's the big deal? Well, the stewardesses make him sit in a seat the entire duration of the flight. When the plane lands, he's the last to leave. Uh, when he leaves, officials of the airline come and they sit down and they begin to berate him and question him. You go, what is going on? I just had to use the bathroom. No, he made a huge mistake. You see, what he thought was the lavatory was the emergency exit. He had actually propped it to the open position, thankfully did not force it open or there may have been a tragic end to the story. You see, church, this is not overreaction. Lives are at stake because the truth of the gospel, the truth of eternity is at stake. There is another gospel that promotes legalism and is works-based and we must plunder it. We must renounce it. We must do our best to preach against it. And we're going to unpack uh, these false, truncated, perverted gospels and expose them for the frauds that they are throughout this study in the book of Galatians. I hope you're excited about it. Uh, I certainly am. Now, before we transition into a time of communion, today it is the first of the month, uh, I want us to jot down four points of application from this text. So if you're taking note, and I hope you are, we're going to jot down four application points. How does this, written to the first century, apply to us today? Okay, jot these down. 
Four big words, and they're easy to remember. Number one, cling. That's more than four words, but just the word cling. Write the word cling down. Cling to the hope, grace, and truth of the gospel. Church, may we not desert it for flirtatious doctrines. I mean, we need to cling to the gospel. Why is it that we are so swift to let go of the gospel so quickly and easily? When I was in high school, I was invited um, on our youth trip to go whitewater rafting. And I lived in Atlanta at the time, so we went up to the Ocoee River. The Olympics were about to happen, so they actually prepared the upper Ocoee. And so actually the story I'm telling you actually happened after the Olympics, so this would have been after high school. Uh, but they invited us to do the upper Ocoee run, which is the Olympic run. And so there's different, there's different classes of whitewater rapids. There's class one, which is, you know, a little whitewater. Class two is pretty significant. Class three is, is sizable. There's, there's rapids, and if you fell in, you would need to be careful. People have died in class three. Class four certainly are much more dangerous uh, territory. And then class five, um, as, we're, as we're kind of going, we're, we're paddling into one of the rapids, the, um, the instructor, the guide, who gets the best seat on the boat, by the way, he gets to sit in the back, so he's safe. Here I am in the front right. And I look back and I said, what is class five again? And um, as we're going into this rapid, he said, well, listen, class five, if you fall in, you will be hurt. <laughs> there will be an injury. You will need medical attention. So I'm like, okay, great. Um, what class is this? And he said, um, this rapid is called humongous, and it's a class five, six. <laughs> I don't even think six is real. And so, you know, uh, so we're paddling on. And guess what happens? Of course, we go into the rapid and our boat flips. I got to tell you, church, I, we talk about the word cling. I was clinging to that raft as if it were my absolute lifeline. And then I realized I was clinging to somebody else. That was actually it's kind of <laughs> holding them down in the water. But listen, that's the type of clinging I, I'm referring to. We, we said this verse in our opening worship, but here on the screen again, Galatians 3.1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul's essentially saying, how'd you miss this? Why, why didn't you cling to the gospel? Why were you taken astray? You guys are acting foolishly. For the early church, we're going to learn throughout this study, it was a group of legalists known as the Judaizers. And they came and bewitched the church. They preached a different gospel. It wasn't God-centered, it was man-centered. And they said, listen, it's not just Christ, it's Christ plus circumcision. Today, it could be Christ plus anything. Maybe it's Christ and America. Christ and moralism. Christ and politics. Christ and fitness. Listen, church, the only Christ and message we are permitted to cling to is Christ and him crucified. Amen? Michael Horton said this, that when we do this, when we depart from Christ, then Christ himself becomes little more than an appendage to a religion that can, after all, get on quite well without him. Every movement needs a mascot. Is that all Jesus is? Is he just an appendage? He's kind of a side note. He's a mascot to cheer us on. See, there's a lot of flirtatious doctrines out there today. So church, cling to what is true. Don't depart from it. And that brings us to our second point. I want you to write down the word beware. Beware. Beware of those who preach distorted gospels. Often, these, quote, gospels will come to you and entice you to moralism. They're very, very subtle. It may be a book that's sold that is a bestseller that says, girl, just go wash your face. 
Just do a little bit more. Try harder. Do better. Be the best you that you can be. And at the end of that, what are we getting? What are we being sold? A distorted gospel. Listen, if we're placing our faith in ourselves, we may read something catchy. But in the end, it's just leading us to pride or it's sinking us down into despair. Only Christ can save and only Christ brings righteousness. There's nothing we can do to add to his finished work. So you might say, well, does that mean I'm supposed to stop reading books by people who disagree with secondary issues? No. I didn't say secondary issues. I said the gospel. But yes, if someone is promoting a distorted gospel, stop reading the books, which are words on a page. Stop singing the songs, which are words on a screen. We need to guard ourselves and beware uh, and be vigilant against deception, not open to it. I think the early church today is just open. Oh, they're not that bad. That's like saying, you know, a sprinkle of arsenic or poison in my dinner is not that bad. It may not kill you at once, but over time it will drug you, numb you, and poison you to death. So church, beware of the external influences that would lead us astray. Which brings us to number three. We need to be careful of the internal, the internal influences. Number three, write this word sabotage down. Sabotage any confidence in the flesh. You see, it's easy for us to condemn these doctrines and say, man, I would never believe that, ever. These guys are crazy who believe that. But how many of us actually practice legalism? We would be quick to denounce false teaching. We'd be quick to denounce legalism, but how many of us live it? Let me read to you from Jeremiah 17. It's not on the screen. Jeremiah 17, 5 through 8 says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes his flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert. And shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, who, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Very similar to Psalm 1. The idea is that we're to not trust man. We're to not put our confidence even in ourselves. Man, the faster the body of Christ would learn this, the more impact I think we would have in the world. Place no confidence in the flesh. Now, lest you think I'm pointing the finger at you, I have a confession to make. When I was first a believer in Jesus, about 20 years ago, I was a new Christ follower. I was about, it was about 20 years ago, so I was about, you know, eight. And... Um, <clears throat> The truth was, I was a staunch legalist. I was born again into a Christian family, but made a profession of faith, repented around 17, 18 years old. And man, I loved to tell people how sinful they were and how they needed to keep the law of God perfectly. Why else would he give us a law? We're supposed to keep it perfectly. You're supposed to, I saw this in you, bro. You're not keeping the law perfectly. You need to work on that. Why else would God give us this? He's pleased with us whenever we fully obey the law. And that's how we're saved. And I was so staunch that I made lots of friends that way. Okay, I was really popular, <laughs> let me tell you. The only remedy for this was when I found myself attending a church. It was a Calvary chapel. And the pastor was teaching verse by verse through the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians changed my life. I sat there and I listened to this concept of why the law was given. And, and that it was a tutor to bring us to Christ. And my eyes were first fully open to this concept of grace. And that, listen, there's a false condemning gospel of law and works that some men promote. 
and some men want you to listen to. And my desire is for us to understand the freeing, redeeming, glorious gospel of grace. And as we go through this uh, verse by verse, uh, as a believer, I think we're going to grow. But as a church community, we're going to grow in this idea of grace. And so I just want to encourage us to work away from, to walk away from a works-based righteousness uh, and understand that we've been given gift righteousness based on the perfection of Jesus Christ, not on us. You could say it this way, let's plunder legalism. Let's plunder it. Let's sabotage any confidence we have in the, fe- in the flesh and just lay it down. Today we're going to take communion and maybe this is the moment where we say, no more. I'm not going to say, Lord, I spent my time in your word today, so now you owe me a blessing. No. I'm going to say, Lord, thank you for the gift of your grace. I get to spend time in your word. It's not a got to. It's a get to. My prayer is that we'd understand this and we'd sabotage confidence in the flesh. Finally, number four. Write this word down. Replace. We need to replace the center of our worship with Jesus, not ourself. Maybe today your salvation is based on you, how good you are doing. Today we need to replace self with Jesus. And as we close at this point, I want to invite our worship team forward and our ushers to head back to the back. We're going to receive communion. During this last song, we'll stay seated and we'll be passing out the elements in just a moment. You'll get two cups with a juice on top and bread underneath. Just take one set of cups and hold on to those through the song. And after the song, we'll share a few words and take communion together. But listen to these words we're about to sing. On the screen. Look at this. The hymnist said this When Satan tempts me to despair, maybe that's happening even now, and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Listen, church, your righteousness is not based on your faithfulness to keep God's commands, but on his. You're not justified by your works, but by Christ's finished work. You are not sanctified by doing more. You're sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit who works within you. We're justified by faith, but we're also sanctified by faith. And at the center of our worship and at the center of our faith, the hinge, if you would, of our true justification and our sanctification, if the hinge is you, you're either going to be built up in pride or you're going to be laid low in despair. As we close, there's hanging in an art gallery in the city of Berlin, a very unusual art piece. It's an art piece by the artist Menzies, and it's called The Unfinished Painting. The artist had begun this work of art portraying a king with his generals all around him. But it took such a long time for him to get the painting underway that he actually died before finishing the work of art. If you look at the picture today, it displays all the details of the generals all around the king. You walk up to it and you see the background, you see the color, you see the precision of the background, and it's captivating. But in the center of the picture, right where the king should be, the most important item of the painting, the central character, where he should be, there stands a great void, a great gap. He never finished the painting, so the centerpiece of the painting is blank space. Could it be? With all of our activities and all of our prayers and all of our efforts and things that we do for God, that we look a lot like the generals around the center. There's a flurry of activity, a flurry of color, a flurry of details, 
But where Jesus should be in the center of it all, it's just a blank space, or worse, there's a portrait of ourselves. Brothers and sisters, any gospel that doesn't have Christ alone at the center is no gospel. May we be vigilant to plunder legalism and live audaciously free lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen? I'm gonna pray a prayer from the Valley of Vision called the Lord's Prayer. We're gonna be taking communion, or the Lord's Supper rather. We're gonna be taking communion in a moment. And let's bow our heads together as I pray this for our congregation. Prayer says, God of all good, I bless thee for the means of grace. Teach me to see in them thy loving purposes and joy and strength of my soul. Thou hast prepared for me a feast, and though I'm unworthy to sit down as guest, I wholly rest on the merit of Jesus. I hide myself beneath his righteousness. When I hear his tender invitation and see his wondrous grace, I cannot hesitate, but must come to thee in love. By thy spirit, enliven my faith rightly to discern and spiritually to apprehend the Savior. While I gaze upon the emblems of my Savior's death, may I ponder why he died and hear him say, I gave my life to purchase yours, presented myself an offering to expiate your sin, shed my blood to blot out your guilt, opened my side to make you clean, endured your curses to set you free, bore your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. Oh, may I rightly grasp the breadth and length of this design. Draw near, obey, extend the hand, take the bread, receive the cup, eat and drink, Testify before all men that I do for myself gladly in faith, reverence and love, receive my Lord to be my life, strength, nourishment, joy, and delight. In this supper, I remember his eternal love, boundless grace, infinite compassion, agony, cross, redemption, and receive assurance of pardon, adoption, life, and glory. As the outward elements nourish my body, so may thy indwelling spirit invigorate my soul until that day when I hunger and thirst no more and sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast. Father, that's our prayer today. We'd receive these elements with faith, remembering what Christ did on our behalf. Lord, as we spend the next few moments in contemplation of our own sin and brokenness and your finished work on our behalf, we pray, Lord, that these things would be true. They're even true backwards, Lord that, Lord, we would be able to cling, beware, that we would sabotage, and that we would replace. But even doing that backwards, we would replace ourselves with you. And then, Lord, we would stop placing confidence in the flesh. And then we'd be open to, to protecting ourselves from false teaching as we cling to Christ. Lord, work these things in our life as we trust you by faith. We love you. We worship you. We thank you for your finished work on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us 
at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.